In his book, 2015 book, Our Only World, Wendell Berry wrote this paragraph reflecting on the way we garner knowledge in our modern culture. Quote, A proper attention to our language, moreover, informs us that the Greek word, or the Greek root for anatomy means dissection, and that of analysis means to undo. The two words have essentially the same meaning. Neither suggests a respect for formal integrity. I suppose that the nearest antonym to both is a word we borrow directly from Greek, poesis, making or creation, which suggests that the work of the poet, the composer, or maker is the necessary opposite to that of the analyst and the anatomist. Some scientists, I think, there are, in this sense, are poets. End of the quote. Barry was criticizing the modern method of discerning knowledge or figuring things out. That in, in the use of analysis, or as he states, undoing, what that means is by default, in order for us to get something, we have to take it apart and see what it's made of. And when completed, we have our knowledge. The problem, as Barry says here, is that in the end, we destroy the thing which we wish to understand. This is what it means by the phrase, this is what he means by the formal phrase, uh, by the phrase formal integrity. The thing that is whole is made into parts to get at what is true. Losing the forest for the trees is the old adage that comes to mind. In other words, we become obsessed so much with making sense of one tree and the one after that and the one after that that when we are done, we have lost the idea of the whole forest of trees, what a grove is, the layered difference between canopy and understory trees, and the abundance of life hidden there. When our vision is lifted off the detail of the last tree, we turn and see a raised land of stumps, of scrub brush with little life therein. This is the tension of knowing details from the big picture, a very old debate dating back even to Plato and Aristotle. What's important, the detail or the whole? The one, Plato, or the many, Aristotle. I'm not prepared to take a side here, but I can point out the importance of both and the severity that comes with the overemphasis of one over the other. As Barry says here of the poet, composer, and maker, there is an importance, and to me an appeal, to the idea of making as opposed to taking apart. But I have to admit that I also need to understand details even for the whole. For example, as I write poetry, I need to understand the particulars of words and phrases in order to make larger phrases and sentences and stanzas. But if I become too obsessed with the words and phrases, I could risk a bad poem, which I write often. I even struggle with this when writing these sermons, maybe in overemphasizing the meaning of certain words. There is a balance, but I agree with Barry. Our culture has become too much about dissection and not enough about life. We even struggle with it here in our study of the book of Revelation. How do we balance the discernment of details in this book with the overall theme of Christ's victorious return? So this morning I'm going to try to walk the line between the two, the whole and the details, the one and the many. It may sound at times like a seminar lecture and others like a sermon. All, I hope, will be an offering to the Lord. And I want to t talk in two sections with a few subpoints. The first section will be about the whole, to look at the big picture in relation to the chapters we are about to enter in this confounding, astounding, amazing, and powerful book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The second section will deal with some of the particulars in this morning's passage. I hope by doing this, light will be given to both 
the whole in the particular for our journey through Revelation. Hey, babe, if you want to hand out the... We have another diagram. I have another diagram. Yay! So, um, my wife is handing out some visual aids to help understand a little more of the book of Revelation through chapter 16, and hopefully these four verses I will be getting to. Uh, First off, I apologize formally to my artist's community for the use of whatever visuals are used here. At the time, I could only use what was before me. That's right. That's right. A couple days ago, I actually played with the idea of asking um, Stephen to carve four carvings and prints in two days. I thought he could probably just do three of the four, so I threw it out as an idea. So, what? <laughs> Please note the wisdom warning here. Yes. Whoa. Please note the wisdom warning. These are helpful devices, but not the only ones, okay? There are are a lot of different devices you can use to look at the book of Revelation, okay? Page one. One of the phrases that I've come across in my study, one that commentators have pointed out, is when the writer John uses the phrase in the spirit. He uses it in chapter one, verse 10, chapter four, verse two, chapter 17, verse three, and chapter 21, 10. What you see here is a visual flowchart of what happens with John in each of these instances. We are already deep into two of these, and two are yet to come. But I found this phrase in these verses helpful in looking at each of the visionary sections of Revelation. We saw in chapter 1, he was on the island of Patmos, on earth. See, that's got earth. There's the earth. He was on earth. When Jesus appears to him in a glorious way. And that is in this vision while on earth that Jesus addresses each of the seven churches of Asia Minor. So he's on earth, right? Then in chapter 4, which Buzzy preached on several Sundays ago, John's geography changes, if we can call it geography. We could call it dimensionality, right? His dimensionality changes. In 4.2, John is taken up into heaven. There's Jesus meeting him at the gates. Actually, the voice is Jesus's in, in this instance, calling him to the... To, through the door. In this case, the door. This is a gate. I couldn't find a door to heaven, but it would have looked too creepy, probably. And it is here that John has shown all the visions through chapter 16. This is where we are presently in our path through Revelation. Then in chapter uh, 17.3, notice the next arrow, John, while in the spirit, is taken by one of the angels who had uh, one of the seven bowls into a wilderness. He does not specify which wilderness, whether it is on earth or in heavenly, or a heavenly one, visionary one. I tend to think he's on earth. But you get the sense that the wilderness is similar to the one the Israelites were sent into when they sent into, when he, God sent the Israelites into the wilderness for 40 years, or when Jesus went into the wilderness for, to fast for 40 days. Biblically, wildernesses were not nice places. It was where the scapegoats were sent in the sacrificial system of Israel, given over to the enemy, Satan no less. And Jesus met the enemy, Satan, there and won. They were seen as places of judgment, but also places to learn or be taught. And then in chapter 21.10, John is carried by that same angel, same guide, in the spirit and brought to a high mountain. That's the other mountain at the end, in a desert. See, I'm just trying to connect the wilderness deserty, and it goes into a high mountain. He goes to a high mountain, that is the New Jerusalem, where both heaven and earth are united once again, the way it was to be at the creation with Adam and Eve. 
you have any questions, uh, hold them, and you can see me after the service, and I'll be glad to give the best shot at an answer. I'll get, I'll get back to the second page, too, in a minute here. What can we learn from these moments? How important is being in the spirit of utmost importance? Months ago, I did a sermon last, uh, actually last August, on the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I won't go into detail about that, but let you listen to it if you like. But I will ask this. Are you asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit in your life, in your daily life? It's available to you. You need only ask and trust that God will give you what you ask. John, in these instances, makes a point to say that he was in the Spirit in these moments. And I'm not prepared to say that God will do the same to you for you, but I know from God's Word that he would much rather you be filled with his Spirit even if he has no plans to take you into heaven for a vision or to appear to you on earth. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is wise to be filled. It is making the best use of time. It is because the days are evil that one, that one seems very timely. You invite understanding God's will when you're filled with the Spirit. You make music in the community, even art maybe. Give thanks for everything. And filling leads to submitting to one another which reveres Christ in the process. That sounds very right, doesn't it? It should. It is right and good that we be filled. So are you being filled? Are you asking? All right, back to page two of my visual aids. By the way, I do these diagrams in church as much for me as for you. <laughs> I don't know if you always have. I don't know if I always have a chart or a diagram in this series since I started it formally in the last sermon. But laying it out this way helps me grasp the ungraspable. Now, from this point, chapter six, verse one, on to chapter sixteen, verse twenty-one, there are three sets of seven that occur, not all in a row, because there are, but because each of the sevens are interspersed with like caveat visions. But the predominant visionary image or device used here are three sevens. Seals, which we start today, trumpets, and bowls. Seals kind of represent regal authority. Brett did a good job of laying that out last week. Trumpets were used both for heralding an arrival, but also signal military action. You know, the riders of Rohan blowing the, we have arrived, we are attacking. Like to send an army into battle. Bowls were used for both food sustenance, but also as sacrificial moments, pouring out an offering, of, of, an offering uh, for the Lord, or in this case, judgment. For these chapters and passages, there are generally few, three views on how these three sets of seven are to be viewed or played out. I've listed them here. They are sequential, concurrent, and mixed. The sequential view sees each of the three sevens happening in real time as one after the other. The first seven seals are done before the next seven start, and then the trumpets begin, and then so on. The concurrent view sees each of the three sevens happening at the same time. That's at the bottom. See that? Sequential, concurrent. 
The mixed, as it is, as it says, the mixed of it's a mix of sequential and overlap, and that varies. Within the mixed view, there are different kinds of overlap, sometimes even concurrent. And this is debated back and forth, and they all have. Well, I'll say that I'm not completely convinced of one uh, of any one view. They all have their good arguments. They all have their problems. You can take that home. You're welcome. Anyway. Um, but I tend to see the concurrent view as the most reasonable. It's a, a good summary of that can be found on the Bible Project's YouTube page. They actually have a two-parter on the book of Revelation under their New Testament series. Uh, they view the sevens as concurrent. I, I'm sympathetic to that one the most. I'm least convinced of the se- sequential, but you can ask me about that uh, later as to why. In putting this page together, I have to say how... I just have to say how interesting the Word of God is. It is truly, in its communication, shallow enough for toddlers to wallow and deep enough for elephants to swim. Are you reading it? Do you read it? How often? Are you doing it out of obligation or do you truly yearn to read it? Now, I've done both. I've done it because I have to. It's kind of part of my work. But there are times usually after I haven't read it for pleasure for a while, that I feel a weight in my heart that I need to read it. I just need to read it. That if I don't read it, uh, I will deteriorate in some unseen place in my soul. It's a weird feeling. Wonderful feeling. Actually, it feels like, oh my gosh, I'm yearning for the Word of God. (laughs) I'm going to go read it. So, I encourage you to read it. I will say that if you read it out of obligation, then do it. Better that than not at all. However, you may want to examine why you're doing it out of obligation because there may be an unseen change going on in you that God is trying to address. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The very first verses of the psalm say, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Brothers and sisters, read God's word. It's good for you, and it's good for us. Your reading of the word helps me, because I know a brother or sister is remaining tethered to the revelation of the one who's high and lifted up. That helps me. Wait, not down here. Hold, sorry. So here we are. Section two here. Here we are, arrived at the first two seals of the seven in the set of three sevens. And we have two of four horsemen who appear in John's vision. Let me reread the verse. Now, it says here, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. What can we make of this? 
I want to comment on these two horsemen, and then I want I then make what I think is a very important observation to these two uh, these verses, these two horsemen. The next ones, and even for the rest of the book of Robert, this observation is is good for even the coming verses, and also the rest of the book of the Revelation. The white and red horse and riders. To make some of my case in this point, I'm going to need to draw from the rest of the verses that mention the other two horses and riders, the black and the pale horse. I hope I don't infringe upon Buzzy's content as I do this, but I find it necessary. Predominantly, there are two views of who the white rider is. One view says this is Jesus, because in chapter 19 of Revelation, it says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Hmm, another white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Conquering and the conqueror makes war seems similar. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on, written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in, uh, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That's in chapter 19. Now, there are similarities in these two passages, chapter 6 and 19. There are white horses, there are riders, there are crowns. There is conquering. However, there are glaring differences that persuade me that the rider in chapter 6 is not Jesus. For for the rider in chapter 19, verse 13, is called the Word of God. This is clearly Jesus. Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's clearly in chapter 19, that's Jesus. It's not as clear in chapter 6. There is no title given to the white rider in chapter 6. Jesus has many crowns in chapter 19. The rider in chapter 6 has only one, the one on his head. The rider in chapter 6 is carrying a weapon. Jesus is not carrying a weapon, though in chapter 1 and later later in chapter 19, there is described a sword in Jesus' mouth. And there is also an army with him in chapter 19. So clearly there's something warlike going on with Jesus in chapter 19. He is coming to conquer, similar to what the rider in chapter 6 is doing. But the rider in 6 is conquering and is to conquer. Jesus has conquered. And he will, he's welcome to conquer. Again, similar but different. Similar. Remember that word. I will come back to it. Similar. Remember it. Another view, similar, similar, all right, sorry, I had to say it several times. Another view of the white rider is that he is the Antichrist. He is coming to conquer because he is appearing as a white knight, but he is actually the devil of hell or his, his minion. This is supported by the verse which the Apostle Paul uses in 1st, 2nd Corinthians eleven fourteen, which says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. This position is also supported by saying that this white rider is coming to conquer, like Satan wants to do with the earth and God. And this is also supported by the following three riders who are bringing some really terrible, even evil things. See, this has got to be the Antichrist. He starts something off terrible. The four horsemen. Could be, but I don't think so. There's a lot of could be's, but I don't think so for me in Revelation. God seems to make it clear who is and isn't Satan or the enemy in his word. I did a cursory, oh, I was just looking up. When God talks about Satan, is it clear? Is there ever a time where it's not clear? 
It was hard for me to find a place where God says in his word that that's a being that's really Satan, but doesn't say that. <laughs> it would seem to be deceptive of God if he meant the white rider in Revelation chapter 6 to be the Antichrist and not say that. He doesn't say it at all. The word Antichrist is only used by John in his letters and nowhere else. So it's hard for me to see this white rider in chapter 6 to be the enemy of God. Some say in chapter... Brett can help me here. What's the beast? Revelation 13. Thank you. Uh, the beast is the Antichrist, but Antichrist is never used. It's clearly the beast, and the, the concept there is it's an enemy. It's clear. It's never like this, where a white rider shows up. Whoa. Satan can come like an angel of light. Are you an angel or are you the devil? Okay, I, I think God would make that clear. This is actually the Antichrist. But he doesn't. So who is he? Remember that word similar <laughs> I used earlier and told you to remember? I want to bring it back now. So the rider in chapter 6 here seems similar to Jesus. Riding on a white horse, like in chapter 19. Similar but not the same. What if that is intentional? The Apostle Paul writes in his letter of a similarity between Jesus and another figure, one of great importance to the history of humanity. Romans 5, 12 through 14 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. A type. Paul says here that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Who was the one to come? Jesus. <laughs> right? More still, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, For as by a man came death, what man came death? By a man come, has come also the resurrection of from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So you see some similarities here between Adam and Christ? Adam brings something. By Adam's act, something, he brings something to all humanity. What? Death and sin. Just as Jesus also brings something to all humanity, life and resurrection, right? Different but similar. Paul shows that Adam and Jesus are similar. Adam is even a type of Christ. And in Revelation 6, we have a rider on a white horse. And in chapter 19, Jesus is also on a white horse. There are evident differences between them, but also similarities. I think this first rider in Revelation is Adam. And God, by, uh, by, these first ride, uh, by these first four horses, God is retelling the tragic story of humanity's fall. Notice of the four, only the first one is not given anything really terrible. Conquering and conquer seems like a terrible thing. And he has a bow, but I'll get to that. But you may ask, what about the bow and the crown? And Adam didn't go to war to conquer, did he? Let me answer with 
Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Right here we have both the bow and the crown referenced indirectly, but referenced how? First the bow. A bow was evidently a symbol of war, even defense. Who did Adam fail to defend the garden from and his own wife? Who did he fail to defend it from? The evil one. He came into the garden. Adam did not do his job. He was given the ability probably to defend but he didn't. What of the conquering? God told Adam to do two things when he placed him in the garden. Fill the earth and subdue it. The, word for, the root word for subdue is kobash. It is defined as, quote, subdue, bring into bondage. Huh. This word was also used in Numbers when the tribes of Reuben and Gad decided they wanted territory east on the east side of the Jordan rather than the west, right? Well, let me say it. East side of the river rather than the west, so you're looking at it, right? But they agreed to help subdue the west before returning to the right of their east side of the river. You look it up. Moses says, you will help us subdue this. And the same word is used when God said to Adam, subdue. What does that mean? Where well, we're going to conquer and take the promised land. The word is also used to describe what Joshua did when he entered the promised land with Israel. They subdued it or conquered it. God told Adam to subdue the wilderness of the earth. Now, about the crown. Back to Genesis 1.28. God gave dominion to Adam and Eve over the earth. Dominion certainly sounds very kingly. Very authoritative. Kings usually wear crowns. The word for crown here is the same one used for the crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head. Pretty wild. If you're not convinced, think about this then. The next three riders. Who was the first of the next three riders? The red rider. Peace was removed from the earth. And it says, so that people may slay one another. What happens in the very next chapter of Genesis after, chapter, uh, after the chapter uh, th- fall of Adam and Eve in chapter 3? What happened? What's the very next chapter? Cain. Cain and Abel. What happened there? Huh. I believe Cain slayed his brother. Peace was removed. If you take the sequential view... And this starts there. Peace has been out of the earth for a very long time. This is just a redo, I think, a redo of the story of all of the fall of humanity. The third horse and rider, who is um, black, right? Yes. He has scales. And then Jesus from the throne says this ancient saying about unfair monetary exchange. It seems like unfair, even shall we say unjust scales. Maybe. The fall, peace left the earth, injustice entered, and finally the fourth rider, the most severe of all, death. 
What happened when Adam and Eve fell? Peace left the earth. Justice soon followed, and death entered the world, opening up the possibility of hell. I think the white rider could be Adam. To return to the idea that I mentioned in the introduction of looking at the whole and the details in a way that neither is, lo- neither is lost, both are respected, I've talked a lot about details, but I was also, I've also shown where the big picture is also present here, even in these verses. The story of humanity's fall is even in these details. But there's an even bigger truth, a bigger story that transcends even that. It is the story of the only person who can perfectly and successfully administer the whole and the parts without fault, and that is God, that is Jesus the Christ. This is why I included the readings from Job, which so eloquently express God who is the only one who can know and administer the halls of frost and snow. Big picture, or whole. And yet at the same time, know where the mountain goats give birth. Or where the the donkey can have its home. Detail. Revelation 6 verse 1 says... Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. Only the Lamb could open the seven uh, the seals. Chapter 4 and 5 showed that. Who is the Lamb? It's a title. Did John actually see a Lamb? Probably not. It's probably Jesus. Remember John the Baptist, what his first words when he saw Jesus coming to be baptized? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why is Jesus the only one? Because he was the second Adam who could do what Adam could not. And he did it by taking off his crown and taking the arrow for us. And John wants his fellow believers to realize this, that even as they are in the midst of tribulation, persecution, and hardship, the Lamb, Jesus, the Lamb as though slain, is the one in control. He is their rider on the white horse with a crown and a bow. I fear as followers of Christ that we are on the cusp of similar hardship. We need to remember that Jesus, the Lamb that John saw in the vision 2,000 years ago, the one with authority to open the seals, is the same one we follow, we follow now. He is no less with us now than he was with John and our brothers and sisters in the first century. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Take heart, brothers and sisters, when we realize this very thing, the God of the whole and the part is our God, then we too can say with Job, as he says after God gets done with his eloquent questions for him, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for being the one who by giving away, putting aside your power, by putting aside your authority, you took the cross. You took the arrow. I pray that that would be very present in our minds as we walk the path forward that you have for us. 
Thank you for uh, your word. Pray that you would help us discern, help us to be as little children as we approach it, but also willing to really bend our minds to it and to be able to see what you want us to see. We love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.